Well, let's turn together to Matthew chapter number 9. Once again, Matthew chapter number 9. And we'll be looking tonight at verses uh, beginning there in verse 35. And we'll work our way down through verse 38. And as I mentioned in even in the prayer earlier, we're dealing with an aspect of our Lord that I personally find one of the most beautiful statements that is made about him. Uh, the phrase that is found there in verse 36, it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. With these verses in verses 35 through 38, Matthew wraps up a series of what we'll refer to as events or maybe episodes, chapters that highlight really the remarkable healing ministry of Christ. There's no one here tonight, I think, that would argue that the the healing ministry of Christ was indeed remarkable. And it was remarkable in the individuals that were touched by his healing hands. But of course, the greater lessons and the greater illustration that was happening uh, make it even more remarkable. But in that ministry, that healing ministry of Jesus, uh, really this now, verses 35 through 38, and really going into chapter number 10, as we'll look begin next week, brings our attention back to the primary focus of what Jesus's earthly ministry was going to be known mostly for. Uh, Now, we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the four Gospels, have considerable amount of time given to healing. And so we're not saying that now he doesn't heal anymore or now that's not important. But what we are seeing happening here is we are reminded again what the primary priority was for our Lord, which was to preach and to teach and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we see those phrases being used. If you look with me at verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And we've already read verse 36, so jump down to verse 37. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Uh, These verses have uh, a lot of wonderful statements. I love the expression, the Lord of the harvest as well. Uh, We can see in verses 35 through 38, uh, you can actually see uh, the doctrines of grace. You can actually see that even Jesus himself is preaching and proclaiming these great doctrines that we hold so dear. Although, sadly, so many despise them, uh, we hold them dear uh, because we realize that without the doctrines of grace, none of us would be rejoicing. Uh, none of us would be able to sing the hymn like we just sang. That would, no, that would mean nothing to us, but yet we see the beauty Uh, Don't ever lose sight of the fact that the doctrines of grace also teach us that the Lord Jesus Christ is compassionate. Uh, You know, it's often the doctrines of grace are treated as something to be hated and something to be despised. And yet the doctrines of grace teach us about the compassion of Jesus. 
The compassion that he demonstrates, the words that are being used to be moved with compassion. It doesn't just say he was compassionate from time to time. It says he was moved with compassion. And we'll, we'll deal with that word in a little bit more depth in just a moment. But we see now that these, these specific things move to the forefront. Teaching, preaching, and healing, of course, is still being mentioned. But you'll also notice as we move along, we'll also see that the prayer that is asked or taught by the Lord is a prayer that he instructs his disciples to pray. Even in these words, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples how to petition God the Father for those who needed compassion. So we see here that Matthew, in those, that verse that we read, he went about all of the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. We rejoice in that. But then we see that phrase, but when he saw. I often think about when I read this, about how it was the Lord who saw me. He saw me when I didn't see him. He saw me and he opened my eyes in order that I might see him. Prior to him opening my eyes and opening my ears, I could not see him, nor could I hear him. And yet, when he saw the multitude, now the multitude doesn't give us exact numbers, but it tells us it's more than a few. It tells us that it's a great crowd of people. He sees the multitude and he was moved with compassion. And it even tells us why he was moved, because they fainted and were scattered as sheep having no shepherd. These three main activities, teaching, preaching, and healing, all three of those things were motivated by the compassion of Jesus Christ. Why he preached, why he taught, why he healed, all motivated by his compassion. Now, one of the great differences in the accounts between the Gospels, in this particular account, Matthew draws a very sharp, and I call it sharp because the words that he uses and the expressions he uses are very sharp and they're very distinct with regard to the ministry of compassion and his attitude towards the people. Now remember, he's been dealing with and has dealt with and will continue to deal with the Pharisees who had the exact opposite attitude towards people. They despised anybody who was not like them. If you were not as righteous as they claimed to be, if you were not as holy as they said they were, they really wanted nothing to do with you. The Pharisees were the exact opposite of Jesus. They were not compassionate at all. So Jesus is drawn with a very sharp contrast of how Matthew describes this compassion. The Pharisees held other Jews even in contempt. They wanted nothing to do with the ordinary Jew. If you're not a Pharisee, if you're not somebody of high religious uh, acclaim, we really don't want anything to do with you, but we do want you to notice just how holy we are and how righteous and how perfect we are. Jesus is the exact opposite of that. 
the Pharisees wanted to keep their people or keep away from the people. Jesus went to where the people were and had compassion on them. Now, the Pharisees truly did believe that we didn't want to get, they didn't want to get too close to the people because they thought so highly of themselves that they thought, if I get too close to these ordinary Jews, I'm going to be defiled and corrupted by them. Can you imagine having such an attitude that you would say, I don't want to be anywhere near you because I'm afraid you're going to corrupt me. You're going to defile me. And yet, here's Jesus going into the multitudes, and he's moved with compassion because he sees people who are not being led, people who are not being guided, and people who are not being cared for because there's nobody who has compassion on them. It's certainly not going to come from the Pharisees. We don't read in our Bible anywhere where the Pharisees have compassion. But here we have this glorious statement made about our Lord that he was moved with compassion. Now, it's significant that Jesus talks about them fainting and having no shepherd. You know who the religious leaders of the day were? Who should have been the shepherds? The Pharisees should have been the shepherds, but they weren't. Having a head knowledge of God doesn't make a man a shepherd. Having an ability to even uh, know of God doesn't make him a shepherd. But yet, these individuals had no shepherd. All they had were people who were filled with their own pious religious head knowledge. They didn't have a shepherd. So Jesus is moved with compassion. We notice here in these verses, as we kind of look at the exposition here and pull these verses apart, that's a a long introduction that gives us a lot of insight where we're going. But you'll notice that it says that Jesus, in verse 35, went about all the cities and villages. Jesus did not confine his ministry to one place. He did not confine his ministry to one place where he says, I'm going to show compassion and kindness. And we often think about that and we think, aren't, we, aren't you glad that Jesus has not only chosen one race or one nationality of people or one, one uh, socioeconomic status to say, these are the people, only these people here are the people I'm going to have compassion on and I'm going to save them. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? Because somebody would be not part of his compassion. But he saved you and I out of his compassion. He saved you and I out of a desire to demonstrate kindness. But he also did not restrict himself to just one place. We see Jesus traveling through many places. We see him throughout the Gospels traveling through Galilee. We see him even in Capernaum. We see him not only visiting large cities, but we see him visiting villages. It's important that the scripture actually mentions the idea here of being cities and villages, large places and small places. He did not confine himself to one place to demonstrate his compassion. Everywhere Jesus went, make no mistake about it, he was doing good. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was doing good. He never did wrong where he went. He never did evil where he went. He did good. Remember, a lot of people only wanted Jesus because they wanted their ailments healed. There were many people that after they got their ailment dealt with, they moved away and they wanted nothing more to do with him. But yet there were these individuals who were not only healed, but were also their converted. And they became followers. 
In those cities and those villages, Jesus no doubt ran into people with all sorts of spiritual states and spiritual conditions. You go into any small town in, in this nation, go into any small town in this state or a bordering state, wherever it is, go into a small town and find out how many people you find who are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. You know, and, and in our, sadly, in our modern church movement, there's this idea that we've got to put these churches and these places in where, where we can build large places where there's lots and lots of people. Don't lose sight of the small villages who need the compassion of the Lord just as much. And yet he went about whatever state, whatever condition. But he didn't just go random. Notice it says that he taught in their synagogues. Now, we don't have as great of an understanding of the synagogue as we probably should. But these synagogues were places of public worship. They were places where prayer was being made. It's where the law was read. It's where the prophets were read. It's the one of those events where our Lord actually went into a synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. That was a common occurrence. Jesus would teach in the synagogues. Those synagogue worship services would also have a word of exhortation. The people would be exhorted before they were sent on their way. Wherever Jesus find, found a synagogue, wherever they were, he went in them. It didn't matter where they were, whether a small village, large city, he went into them and he taught. He taught in their synagogues. He taught people publicly. That's what makes the Lord's word so powerful in the end when they come to take him in the garden and it's his time has come and he allows himself to be taken and he makes mention. He said, I taught publicly. Jesus wasn't doing this behind some wall somewhere. Jesus's ministry was very, very public. He said, I taught publicly and you had no issues at first. But then, of course... We see that not only did he ta teach in the synagogues, but he preached the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, of course, encompasses the good news of the gospel, the tidings of peace and pardon. The gospel that tells us about reconciliation for the sinner, salvation that is found. And isn't it I ironic that the gospel he was preaching, he was preaching as the actual Messiah. He was the Messiah. Salvation is found in me. You know, every time a preacher gets up and expounds the word, he's pointing people to the Messiah. He's pointing people to Jesus Christ. He's not pointing people to himself. But when Jesus preached, he was pointing people to himself as the way of salvation. The gospel of the kingdom included anything that related to the gospel. And again, we firmly believe that the doctrines of grace was not a creation of John Calvin that the doctrines of grace are what the Bible teaches. Now, some people would label us heretics for saying such foolishness, but yet you see these, this beautiful picture here. So he preached not only concerning the kingdom of God, but he preached, of course, about God's glorious grace, the glory of the Savior, the doctrine of regeneration, We'll see later that Jesus puts his finger directly on the problem that the Pharisees had, which was 
they thought they could depend on their own righteousness. And you remember, he makes the comment later, he's, he tells his disciples, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a better righteousness than the Pharisees have. Because if, you're, if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying? Their righteousness is not going to get you anywhere. They needed a righteousness that only Christ could provide. So it's safe to say that the scribes and the Pharisees did not have the title to eternal salvation, yet Jesus Christ was preaching what the key was and what the, what the gospel actually was. Now notice again in verse 35, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It does not say that he healed every single person. He doesn't say that he did heal every single disease. He healed every type of disease and every type of sickness. Now I say this often, and I think we know this, we don't have every single thing that the Lord Jesus Christ did recorded in Scripture. We don't have every single event. We don't have every single healing. But we do have everything that God wanted us to know. So what do we believe about healing all, every type and every disease? Every type. He was, he was healing. He was, he was healing sicknesses. He preached not so much for the healing of their body, but for the healing of their soul. The purpose of the healings was not to gain physical use of whatever was not working. It was spiritual health he was after. Their soul is what he was after. And so this spiritual health, he brought the cure for that which ailed them. Of course, he healed all sorts of diseases. We saw that in the previous couple of weeks. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He raised people from the dead. People were being brought to him. Miracles were, were confirming. All of these things were happening. But they were happening as he was preaching doctrine and he was preaching truth. Verse 36, again, we get into these beautiful pictures. But when he saw the multitudes, as he traveled these ways, as he traveled these circuits, as he went through these towns and villages... Can you see the Lord observing? Can you see the Lord observing the large numbers of people? Some people, just him entering into town, led people to flock to him because word had gotten out, this man Jesus heals. So you can kind of see as he comes into the town or the village or the city gates that maybe there's a recognition and there are people that flock to him and there are some that are there for the right reasons, but there are some that are there for the wrong reasons. You know, I do believe that even in the conversion of a soul, Jesus Christ has saved people who initially were seeking after God for all the wrong reasons. They didn't really want God for who God really was. They had an ideal of what God was and what they thought God could do for them. But you know, even in his compassion, he even saved people who were haters of him at one time. I don't know if there's anybody that hated the Lord Jesus Christ and hated the gospel more than Paul. And I, I'm not talking about a dislike. I'm talking about a hatred where he would say, I want every one of those people of that way, I want them dead. And I'm so driven by that, I'm going to go and I'm going to get permission to round them up and kill them. And if I can't kill them, I'm going to put them in prison. 
That was not a hatred of people, folks, as much as it was as a hatred of God, which again demonstrates without the doctrines of grace, the Apostle Paul doesn't pen half the Bible because he didn't come to his own senses. He's saved on the road to Damascus because his eyes are opened by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Aren't you glad he didn't use all of our old sin to determine whether or not he would open our eyes because we'd all be disqualified. Every one of you'd be disqualified and so would I. I wouldn't have any, I have no merit to stand on anyway. But yet he sees the multitudes. He sees those that are flocking to him. He knows what's in their heart before they even get there. There were people who seemed to desire to learn. There were others that were just there for the benefit. What can you do for us like you did in the previous towns? And it doesn't make a distinction. It just says he sees the multitudes of various people. He's moved with compassion on them. It, this moving is a deep yearning for. This isn't a, just a sympathetic glance. Oftentimes we think compassion is defined by we see somebody in a great struggle and that compassion is we walk by them and we say, boy, they are really in a bad place. That's not really compassion. It's sympathy. There's sympathy to it. There's empathy. We might talk about it as we walk by and say, I wonder how that person got in that situation. I wonder if that's sometimes we do this. I wonder if their situation is of their own doing. Did they do that to themselves by some bad life choices? And somehow we talk ourselves out of saying, well, maybe they don't really need my help after all. Maybe I'm just being too transparent, but we've done it. We've done it where we could have stopped and we could have done something and we could have been moved with compassion. This was not just a glance. This was being moved on compassion, even for the people who were there for the wrong reasons and for the people who were just there to get a healing. It says he was moved with compassion on them. This moving with compassion is to be touched with their infirmities. To feel it. To actually feel what their spiritual condition is. Now remember, Jesus, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings through our study of the book of Hebrews, is that merciful high priest. He's spoken of in the book of John as the good shepherd. He's spoken about in other portions of Scripture as the faithful prophet. Jesus Christ was concerned for the souls of men. And his compassion, the feeling of their iniquities, is what moved him. What was moving him? Because they fainted. Now, oftentimes we get lazy in our exposition. We get lazy in our study. And we just assume fainting always has to do with they fainted because they were tired. They fainted because they were sleepy. They fainted because they were weary. I don't think this is so much about fainting because they had been journeying so much and they were tired. I think they were wearied and they were fainting under the burden and the bondage of all of the Pharisees' traditions that were weighing them down because nothing was bringing healing to their soul. We don't realize how burdened we are until our eyes are opened to what the true doctrine, the true gospel. We are, we're burdened and, and heavy laden 
with the traditions and the doctrines that the Pharisees had issued on the people. It was a yoke around their neck. That's why Jesus used terminologies, come unto me. And he said, it's not, mine's not like that yoke. He knew what he was talking about because they knew the bondage that the Pharisees' teachings had put them in. I believe that that's what they were burdened about. That's what he saw. That's what he was observing. But notice not only were they fainting, but they were scattered abroad. The word scattered has the meaning here of being thrown and tossed around. To to, to be scattered. Scattered also suggests that they are divided. There were probably an unnumbered amount of divisions of religious belief systems going on, even in that multitude. It's no different than our society today. You can go out these doors and you can go out into the workplace tomorrow or school or wherever you're going, and you're going to run into a lot of different divisions of a lot of different belief systems that all people will just say, well, we have faith. Not all faith is the same. People, people use that term, I'm a, well, we're people of faith. What type of faith? Because the only true faith is the faith that is founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, we can't talk that way in our inclusive society today. That's what the scriptures tell us, that Jesus Christ is the only way. Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus didn't go into these towns and say, look, I'm going to acknowledge all of your different ways of faith. No, he came in and observed that you are scattered, you're divided. There's no care being taken for your spiritual condition. There's nobody gathering you. There's nobody trying to keep you together. There's nobody feeding you. You're just simply cast-offs from the Pharisees. Because they should be your shepherd. And that's what he says, as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd become good for nothing. Because without a shepherd, without the responsibilities of a shepherd to guide them, they are going to be scattered. They are going to be weary. The scribes and the Pharisees probably would have called themselves shepherds, but they wouldn't have called themselves bad shepherds. They were supposed to be leaders of the people. But they were bad ones. They were bad ones from the standpoint and the comparison of even the shepherds of Israel who, instead of feeding the people, fed themselves. Instead of gathering the flock together, they scattered them. Jesus is seeing the very same things that Israel, even in the Old Testament, is described. He sees no one able to heal their sick. He sees no one there able to bind up their wounds. He sees nothing that can bring them spiritual guidance. As a matter of fact, if you were to truly look what did the Pharisees' doctrine caused people to do, it drove them away. It didn't draw them in. Again, that effectual drawing of the Spirit that no man can come to the Father except by me. We, we were effectually drawn 
to Christ, not because we were religiously smart, not because we were having a good day mentally, but because we were drawn effectually by the Spirit of God to go to the Father, only through the Son. And yet, the Pharisees couldn't do that. No Pharisaical tradition will lead people to the true Christ. No self-righteousness will lead people to Christ. No amount of good works that you do, no amount of giving that you give, it's going to lead people to Jesus Christ. Yet now, here is the shepherd standing in the multitude. I came across this quote from, from Spurgeon, and I absolutely love this. He said, A great crowd is a demand upon compassion, for it suggests so much sin and need. In this case, the great want was instruction. They fainted for want of comfort. They were scattered abroad for lack of guidance. They were eager to learn, but they had no fit teachers. Sheep having no shepherd are an ill plight, unfed, unfolded, unguarded. What will become of them? Our Lord was stirred with a feeling which agitated his inmost soul. He was moved with compassion. What he saw affected not his eye only. And I love this. What he saw affected not his eye only, but his heart. He was overcome by sympathy. His whole frame was stirred with an emotion which put every faculty into forceful movement. He is even now affected towards our people in the same manner. He is moved with compassion even when we're not. So that person that we just give a glance of empathy towards, he's moved with compassion toward. Now, as, as was the custom of Jesus, he uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. And I believe to teach us. Verse 37, then saith he unto his disciples. You can almost see this unfold. It's almost as if he turns to these men and he says, all right, men, I'm going to explain what you're seeing. Now, he doesn't go down the same line and say, here's what moved me. Here's what's making me do what I'm doing. Here's what's making me say what I'm saying. But here's what he, here's what he says. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Now, he's being moved with compassion, not just by the eye only, but by the heart. He's filled with compassion towards these people. He observes their, their miserable, sad, sinful condition. He turns to the disciples, who, by the way, he hasn't even officially called them yet. Chapter 10 is the calling of the 12. He's not officially called them yet in the capacity he's going to call them. But he turns to them and he says these words. He's engaging their hearts into the ministry he's getting ready to call them to. The harvest is plenteous. Now, we understand that none that the Father has given to the Son will be left. A harvest 
has a suggestion that the harvest, that, that there is a certain harvest that is going to be pulled. There is a certain number of God's elect that are going to be pulled. And we know that, that from the, what the doctrines of grace biblically teach us is that none will be left. All that belong to him will be brought unto him. This harvest, he says, is truly, it's plenteous. Now, it wasn't just the multitudes that are there. It's every city, every village, every town, every place where his people, where the elect are. People often say, I hate the doctrine of election because it seems to be unfairly leave people out. Listen, the doctrine of election is the most comforting thing you're ever going to hear because it guarantees nobody's going to be left behind. I just feel like it'd be better if everybody was given a choice on their own. If we're given a choice on our own, we're all going straight to hell. And we're, we're going on the express lane. We're not even attempting to get off. We're going straight because there is none that is righteous. No, not one. There's none that seek after God. But he's moved with compassion and he says, these are mine. They're mine because the Father gave them to me. And if he gave them to me, I'm not going to leave them. These were not being called the harvest because of anything that they had prepared in themselves. They were called the harvest because what the grace of God had done or was going to do in them. One of the great comforts of understanding the doctrines of election is understanding that even if I'm not seeing God do a work in someone right now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to one day have their eyes opened. And that they're not going to see the glorious truths that are here. Therefore, it's called the harvest. Now, harvest time, we understand a little bit about that. I'm not a farmer. I can't, I can't speak of everything that goes on to it. But I have, a, I have a general idea that there's a planting time and then there's a harvest time. I do, I, I do know that. And I do know that the harvest is intended to gather up what's, what is grown there, what's there. And that the harvest didn't, what you're going to harvest was put there by somebody. It, it didn't just randomly grow in perfect rows of corn and perfect rows of soy or whatever it is. Somebody planted that seed. And typically the person that planted the seed is the person that comes back and actually takes the harvest out. So this harvest... This harvest was not people that had planted themselves or prepared themselves. These were people that were prepared before the foundation of the world. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about in Ephesians. We were, we were his before the foundation of the world. These, those that would be ripe for the harvest. The harvest would come at the appointed time. There's a set time for the harvest to be gathered in. It would be absolutely insane for a farmer to plant the seed in March or whatever and then go out there in April and say, harvest time. It's, it's so much, it's so spiritual applications that are here. What is that harvest time? That harvest time is a fixed time, folks. 
What gives me comfort about what's going on in our world and what's going on and what's going to happen to our world is knowing that there's a fixed appointed hour in which God is going to send the sun back and he's going to gather that harvest and there's nobody or no thing or no event, no, nothing's going to stop that from happening. It's harvest time. And the purposes of God are going to come to pass. All who have been effectually called by the gospel and converted when the appointed hour comes are going to be harvested. That's who Christ is calling to harvest. Now for all those people that say, I hate the doctrine of election because it's so narrow. He says the harvest is plenteous. Now, plenteous just means there's quite a lot. Isn't it amazing how everybody zeroes in on the negative thought about like election and, and don't, that they don't think about the reality about what God's purposes actually might be and that that number might actually be much larger than what we think it is? Because they say, you're the people that walk around like the religious elites. Why would he choose you? And we all have the patented answer. Why did he choose anybody? But if the harvest is plenteous, and he's not talking about every single person being the harvest, because then we'd have to believe in a universal salvation, which the Bible doesn't teach everybody's going to be saved. But the harvest is plenteous. I don't know how many of that multitude that he sees, I don't know how many of them ended up being one of his. But you know, I take great comfort in, he tells them, the harvest is plenteous. But he does say the laborers are few. And this is, a direct, this is a direct relation to the amount, those who will go into those fields, those who will go in and will labor in the gospel. Those who will labor in the word, they will labor in doctrine. They will be constant in prayer. They will give themselves over to the study and the reading of the word. And by the way, that desire does not come from man. That desire comes from God. I've said this, and I don't want to get too personal. This is not how I envisioned my life. I had other big plans. Preaching the gospel and pastoring was never a part of my plan, ever. I still can only say God had to have done this because now I have a desire to do things I hated to do. I hated to read. Now I can't read enough. Now, there's a desire to care for the souls of people and to care for their spiritual well-being. That's not man. That's God. The laborers are few. Remember, context, he's getting ready to call his 12 disciples. Initially, he's calling them to this ministry. And remember, he knows one of those 12 was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be the betrayer. And yet, that man's going to follow with him for three and a half years. And Jesus is going to know the whole time what Judas is there for. And then ultimately that same Judas, who's counted as the laborers, is going to be the one that betrays me. To preach the word in season and out of season. He says these laborers are few. There are very few who are willing to be spent and to be spent for Christ. I certainly... Again, not to be too personal, but I would sit here and say, I certainly have not reached a place in my life where I could sit and honestly tell someone, 
I truly understand what it is to be spent for Christ in totality. But I do know there are people around this world who are laboring in the gospel. They are laboring and they are being completely and fully spent for the gospel of Christ. Some of them may be those people we see who are being martyred. Some of them may be people that we see are are taking a stand for the gospel in places where the gospel has been. And by the way, there are places in the world where the gospel is already banned. It's already against the law. It's already illegal to assemble. I don't know if we understand in America yet what it is to be spent for Christ because we have not ever really seen that crackdown that says what you preach must cease. It's not hard to preach to a friendly crowd, but it certainly is difficult to preach when the world is saying we want nothing to do with what you're offering here. And yet, Jesus is going to send his disciples out and he doesn't sugarcoat. He says, I'm sending you into a den of wolves. If they won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next. Now, the disciples don't know all this yet. Just like they have no idea when he calls them, they don't have a comprehension of the cross. They're not looking forward to say, okay, he's calling us. We know now in some three and a half years, he's going to go to a cross. They have no idea what that even is. But yet he's getting ready to call them. Now notice what he says at the end of verse 38. He says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. He tells his disciples what to pray. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Who sends laborers into the harvest? The Lord does. The the Lord does. The Lord of the harvest, which means God the Father, sends those who are his, those into those who are, are his, the harvest. He will gather them in. Not a single one of them is going to be left. You realize the Lord Jesus Christ himself has the care of the whole of all the Father has given him. He will bring them all in. He will bring all that the Father has given. The sending forth of the laborers, as we're going to learn in chapter number 10, shows this is the proof that in order for the laborers to be sent, we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send those laborers. That petition is specific, that he will send forth. That's the petition, that's the prayer of the disciples of Christ were put up, that had put upon them is to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers. You realize that those 12 disciples that are called, not a single one of them could make themselves a disciple, they couldn't qualify themselves as a disciple, and they couldn't send themselves out as a disciple. They had to be called by he who was qualified to call them. Qualified to be sent out. He sends them out and he's going to give them gifts of ministry. He's going to give them the gift to incline the hearts of people. He's going to call them, send them forth with the ability to perform some miracles. He's going to send them out as laborers. They're not going to have the time to just simply indulge themselves in idle time. It is going to be the fullness of their life. That's why we're going to see later, Jesus is going to tell Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Your fishing ministry as you know it is done. 
Now you're going to be a fisher of men. Yet we see this great power of this prayer of hoping for this blessing and this power to attend unto what God is going to do with them. How do we pray for loved ones? How do we pray for those who are not yet saved? We pray that the Lord of the harvest would save them. We pray that the Lord would use laborers to call our loved ones to himself. The request the disciples were being instructed to make was that the Lord of the harvest would send, also send them forth. Meaning this, that they should not go forward without the power of God upon them. Folks, we've said this, and biblically this is, this is Scripture as Scripture can get. Unless the Word of God is attended with the power of the Spirit, it's just words. The Spirit has to attend to those words and make it effectual. That's why thousands, millions of people throughout generations have sat and heard the Word of God, read and preached and taught and walk away unconverted because unless those words are attended with the spirit of conversion, those people are not going to get saved. And you say, boy, that's discouraging. No, go back to what we're talking about. His word is not going to return void. It's not going to return void for any of those that are his. One day in your life, if you've been converted, there was a point in time when the word of God came to you with effectual power and opened your eyes and unstopped your ears and you saw yourself for what you really were, you still see yourself for what you really are and you, yet you see the beauty and the glory of who he is. And it leads you to say, what do I have to boast about? And the answer is nothing. That's why the, the Apostle Paul said, I will boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ because nothing I've done, nothing I ever will do, should be the subject of my boasting, only what the Lord of the harvest has done for me. With great opportunity, the Lord puts this petition to his disciples in order to prepare them for where we're going next week. The mission of the 12 he's going to give to them is to preach the gospel. He's going to give the mission to them to go into all the world and preach and teach. He's going to give them the same mission in which he, we find him doing as well. And so we'll look at that beginning next week when we start in Matthew chapter number 10. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And Lord, we can't even possibly measure how good you've been to us. Lord, to even be able to stand here today and, and be seated here and think, that if we are in the body of Christ, that we are one of yours. And we'll never fully understand the mysteries. We'll never fully understand why, why choose us. But may we not be ashamed. May we not be bashful in what we believe and know the Bible teaches. But Lord, help us not to lose sight of Jesus being moved with compassion. Nothing that we know of our God should lead us to arrogance, should lead us to be uncaring and unkind and non-compassionate, but it should lead us to all the opposite. We should be people of compassion.
And Lord, help us to be what our Lord was, compassionate towards the multitudes. Lord, we thank you, we praise you for what we've learned tonight. And I pray we'll leave here in just a moment rejoicing. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. If you would, let's take the hymn book and we'll turn.